Welcome to the Stuttgart Missional Community Church Sermon Podcast. SMCC is a multicultural church serving the English-speaking community in Stuttgart, Germany. For more information or to contact us, visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net. If you would open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, that's where we'll get started today. And um, if you have been reading the news... Um, you can, boy, you just read the news every single week, and, and, or you watch the news, and you see that the world is not a perfect place. We are not living in a perfect utopia, and uh, the dividing line between right and wrong, or your way and my way, is becoming ever bigger and ever deeper. You know, it's like, you don't agree with me, I can have nothing to do with you, and uh, you don't agree with me, I wish you were dead kind of thing. That is that is crazy talk, and it seems like the only thing people can agree on anymore is that we don't agree on things, and uh, uh, people also can agree that there's just something not right with the world, and uh, you know, you just read in the news uh, of horrific things happening all over the world, uh, lots of needless murder and uh, just horrible atrocities committed against children, and, and it's just... It's not, it doesn't take a, a lot of investigative talent to decide, okay, there's something wrong in the world, and it's a broken world, and it's definitely not reflective of what we've studied in the last couple of chapters where God created everything good. You know, we saw God create the heavens and the earth, and he created everything good. He created male and female in his image, and they were also good. But why doesn't our world look like that today? Why is everything not good? Perhaps you think there are good people and there are bad people, and uh, those bad people are making things bad for the rest of us, right? It's not us who usually thinks we're bad, but could it be possibly that it's not just them, but it's us? Like, sin is the problem. Our sin is also part of the problem. It's in each and every one of us. Though some of us may not act on our most base thoughts, sometimes we still think them, right? Sometimes we're still, you know, maybe I didn't give so-and-so the finger on the way over here today because he cut me off, but you thought about doing it, right? You thought about doing it. You thought about cheating someone. You Maybe you've thought about cheating on your spouse. Maybe you've thought about looking at pornography, those things enter our mind. They're, they come from seemingly nowhere sometimes. I think we can echo what Paul said, that that I want to do, I do not do, and that that I don't want to do, I do. What is it that is working within us to sin? In this session, we're going to see that Adam and Eve chose to sin against God in open defiance of his goodness. But there is this is, <laughs> this sounds very sad, this sermon, I understand, right? And, you know, ser- sin is not something talked a- about a lot in a lot of pulpits anymore, and I think that's really wrong, because without acknowledging that we have sin, that acknowledging that we need forgiveness, it's almost impossible to talk about the hope and grace that we have in Jesus Christ, amen? So there is hope today, and we're going to talk about that too. As we get to chapter 3, verse 15, we're going to get to the point where we see the first mention of Jesus Christ. If you think that Jesus is only mentioned in the New Testament, number one, that is a complete falsehood, right? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the Word of God, and in the beginning 
was God, right? So we know that Jesus was there in the beginning, and when he said, let us make man in our own image, who is part of the us? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, amen? So Jesus is there from the very beginning. So we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 3. Very famous story, paintings of it everywhere, right? Stories of it everywhere, often distorted, but uh, nevertheless, it is both in our culture as Christians and in the contemporary pop culture as well, the story of Adam and Eve. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? Is that what God said? Does anybody remember from last week? Did God say you cannot eat any of any tree, or did he say of one tree? One tree, right? But here's the enemy, right, twisting what God had said. That's one of his, really one of his main weapons. And the, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God say you shouldn't touch the tree? No, he didn't say that either, all right? But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So what we can learn from this story is it's the woman's fault. <laughs> oh. Which is absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. The nature of sin involves three aspects. Three aspects of the woman's interaction with the serpent resulting in her disobedience and the subsequent disobedience of the husband. We're going to talk about unbelief, idolatry, and rebellion. Three aspects of sin. Unbelief, idolatry, and rebellion. First, the serpent comes and he twists God's word. He says, did God really say? His aim wasn't to start an argument with Eve, but to cast doubt on God's word. This is the enemy's main tactic, to get us to doubt the truth and authority of Scripture, to get us thinking, did God really say that? Did God really forbid you to enjoy life? See, a lot of people will not become Christians because they associate becoming a Christian with, the, the, with sucking the joy out of life. Why is that? Because a lot of Christians are really good at sucking the joy out of life. That's why, right? Because we're really good at laying down rules and making things legalistic and saying, well, you need to do this, this, and this. In truth, a lot of times what we're doing is imposing our own conscience on people. Right? Maybe God says that's not okay for you, but that doesn't mean it's not okay for the world. Now, I'm not talking about obvious sin, right? Sexual morality, drunkenness. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about we like to come into situations and suck the joy out of life sometimes, and so people get the impression that to be a Christian means to not have fun. 
And I just, I totally disagree with that. And shame on us for ever teaching the world that that's the way it is, right? But, you know, to me, fun is not, you know, spending all night out, doing things I shouldn't be doing, drinking too much, and then spending the rest, you know, the early hours of the morning hugging the toilet bowl. That's not fun to me either, okay? Uh, I've done that, uh, and uh, it wasn't good, right? Just, it's not good. That's not fun to me. But we can have fun. We can be fun people. We don't have to suck the joy out of every party and every room we go to. But here is Satan saying, did God really say that? And this is where biblical literacy really comes in. Because we don't know what God really says unless we go to the Bible and we read it for ourselves. That's God's revelation to mankind, not just to pastors and priests and leaders in the church, but God's word is for you. Right, And if you don't understand it, or you're having a hard time reading it, there's two things that are probably standing in the way of your understanding of Scripture. Number one, you're not a Christian. That's a huge hindrance. Right? You need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Give Him your heart. Invite the Holy Spirit to come in and illuminate God's Word. I can tell you, I tried to be a good person before I became a Christian. I tried to read the Bible. It made no sense to me. It wasn't about me. It was, about, it was just a bunch of ancient stories and texts. But the minute I got saved, the minute I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, and I opened up the book of John, in that first chapter... The pages were covered in my tears because I understood for the very first time that Jesus left heaven and he came to earth to save a sinner like me. The word of God is for for everyone. If you're having a hard time understanding, the first step is you're reading it through a lens that is not a, a Christian lens, right? You're reading it with your worldly knowledge, with what you've been taught and your understanding, maybe even the way you were brought up, which inherently may not be evil, but also needs to be surrendered to God, right? We read the Bible for the truth that it is. And so being a Christian is part of that. Accepting the Bible as God's word. That's a huge step, okay? Number two is you just don't have literacy in it. I became a Christian at age 21, right? I didn't go to Sunday school. I went to something in the Catholic church called catechism, where they don't really teach you the Bible as much as the traditions of the church, Okay, but I never learned to read the Bible. I didn't ever, you know, I never had any background in it. But when I became a Christian, there was a hunger born within me to understand God's word. And so I made myself learn and for the most part, self-taught uh, reading God's word. Of course, I went to Bible school and I did those things too, but that came much later. But you got to get in it. And we're doing everything we can here to help you get into God's word, right? So when Satan comes and says, did God really say you could say, no, he really didn't say, right? He didn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that, right? God helps those who help themselves. Amen? Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. Often quoted as in the Bible, but not in the Bible. You need to, to discern what is a lie. You need to know the truth. That's why we place such a high priority on God's word here. We have a high view of scripture. Get into God's word. Get into it. So unbelief. Number two, idolatry. Until this point in the story, it has only been God who has been declaring things as good. Did you notice that? All things were created good, right? God said they were good. But in this story, Eve looks at the tree and she sees that it was good, right? What God had forbidden, she decided was good. 
And so Eve had taken it upon herself to decide what's good and bad. And this is idolatry. What is idolatry? It's worship of anything other than God. What are men and women most susceptible to worshiping? Ourselves. This is a sin. This is the sin that Eve committed. She committed idolatry by deciding that she was the Lord over her life, not God. Church, I want to tell you that this is a struggle inside the walls as much as it is outside the walls. The lordship of Jesus Christ is paramount in our lives. Without lordship, we will never submit ourselves to God's word. If we don't, we will never live out God's word or do our absolute best to live out God's word if we do not submit to the lordship of God. Right? If, we, if it's up to us to decide what should be included in God's word or not, Right? This is exactly what Eve is doing. We will always succumb to sin. We will always be caught in its web because we have made ourselves Lord. We're saying, God, I know what your word says, but that's not what's good for me. That's not what's good for me, God. Okay? I know what's good for me. I know. You are in control of your own self. Right? You are committing idolatry, the sin of making yourself Lord. Follow Jesus, follow the word, and let him decide what is good and what is bad. Lastly, it's rebellion. It's rebellion. God promised if he was in charge, they would experience blessing. If they were in charge, they were going to experience death. Now, there are things in this world that look great to us, and we see people in the world enjoying them. Right? It seems like no harm, no foul. Right? They're enjoying these things, but God's word has explicitly said no. When God says no, we have to decide in that moment, are we going to rebel against God or are we going to follow God? Are we going to follow and trust in him? I tell you, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall. This world is full of thorns and thistles everywhere we go. But if our mind and our heart is focused on Jesus and we're continually pursuing him and following his way, though we stumble, we will always stand back up. And to those of you in this room who can relate with me and have been to a place in your life where you have found it very difficult to stand back up, you know the depth of sin and depravity in your own life and the wicked spiral that it creates. Getting back up and standing up, if we indulge sin, if we continue in sin, it just gets harder and harder and harder to stand back up on your feet. You, we need to learn to hate sin. It's okay to hate what God hates, and one thing God hates is sin. We ought to also hate sin in our own lives. I would say that this is a delineating line between Christian and non-Christian. Christians hate sin. And that doesn't mean they... Don't sin, because surely we all do sin, but we hate that we do it. Again, with Paul, he hated that he continued to sin. He wanted to do good, but he continued to sin. Why? How do we know Paul sinned? Because he was a man, right? And all men fall short of the glory of God, the psalmist tells us. Everyone has sinned. No one has lived a perfect life save Jesus Christ. The lies of unbelief, idolatry, and rebellion were first believed believed by Adam and Eve and now bubble up in each one of our hearts. It has become almost kind of an assumed dogma within our culture that you cannot go wrong if you just follow your heart. 
right? You even see this in Christian bookstores sometimes. Follow your heart. The truth is, the best path to happiness and freedom is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes our heart and our emotions can deceive us and betray us. Following a heart that is not submitted to the will of Jesus Christ is exactly what Satan was tempting Eve with, to follow her heart, but it was not submitted to God. I think another thing we need to understand about sin is that it's just not inherited from Adam and Eve, but it's personal and willful. Each one of us has sinned against God. We're guilty on our own of sinning against God. And that disobedience is basically a clenched fist in rebellion towards God. Not one person in this room has not spit in his face or nailed the nails in his hands. We are all guilty. He went to the cross for each and every one of us. When Adam and Eve were walking with God in the cool of the morning, there was no shame. There was perfect fellowship with God. But as soon as they sinned, they knew that they were naked. Their guilt was before them, and they hid away from God, which I think is just shows their ignorance and ours as well. The idea that we can hide our sin from God, right? Now, we're really good at hiding it from other people. There's plenty of things we don't talk about at parties, but one thing we can't do is hide from God. We cannot hide our sin from God, and primarily when we sin, we sin against God. Now, other people may be hurt because of it, but we are primarily sinning against God, and it's through Him that we receive forgiveness. Sin brought shame and separation from God, but it brought other consequences as well, including death, just as God had said. Let's continue in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14 as we get to point number 2. Sin brought death and ruptured our created purpose, but hope remains. The Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pause here for a second. This is the first mention of foreshadowing the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Who is her offspring? Jesus. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Talking of the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. So here is God's redemptive purpose pointing out in chapter 3 of Genesis. And the entire story from here on out is talking and foreshadowing Jesus coming. To the woman he said, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree that I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taking, taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothe them. So here we have the result of the fall. 
right? That men work, we talked about last week, was before the fall. We always were to work the land, but now it is full of thorns and thistles, and in pain and suffering we shall bring forth fruit, okay, from the earth. And Eve, pain and childbearing, which must have been a surprise to her because to this point in Scripture, we don't have any babies being born. So there was never an easy baby. Never, right? There was never one just done, right? Uh, it's always been pain and hardship and childbearing. And you women, seriously, I've, you guys are totally cool. I mean, just everything that goes into having a baby is just, it blows my mind. I've been in the hospital seeing so many babies uh, being born and uh, not actually, okay, wait a minute, rewind just a little bit. I've never seen a baby being born, but I've been there shortly after, okay, and uh, just seen the exhaustion on the, the mom's face. And Jim Gaffigan, a, a funny, funny guy, comedian, talks about this one time. He's like, the male contribution to life is so inf- just so small compared to what the woman brings to the table, right? I mean, she grows a human being inside her body, and then that human comes through her body into the world, and then she can feed the baby with her body, right? And uh, (laughs) man's contribution is pretty insignificant when it's all said and done, right? But that pain and that that pain of childbearing is is it, 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 even that is foreshadowing of Christ, because it's that pain and that suffering on the cross that G, you know he he was able to endure it by seeing what that would bring right grace and mercy for each and every one of us like a woman in childbearing Jesus was on the cross being beaten mocked stabbed poked in the chest, all these things, but he gave it all for us because he saw the future. He saw us in glory with him, and for him it was worth it. And, and I think, I have never met a mom who, holding her newborn baby, said, yeah, not really worth it. Now, maybe you thought that about three years later, but not immediately, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Calm down. All right? I mean, I, I just can't even t- t- talk about this without seeing Celia and thinking about the 13 weeks that she was in, she was bedridden. We were all praying for her and believing God. And at the end of that time, wasn't it worth it when you were holding her? Right. <laughs> right. Right. Today, those same consequences are still being bared out in our lives. Death is promised to us all. We will one day cease to be. But that doesn't mean that I be on the earth. It doesn't mean that, that we have to spend eternity apart from God. The pain and suffering of sin manifests itself in our lives in five different ways. Number one, it, it, it reveals itself in pain. Prior to the fall, there was no pain. There was no suffering of any kind. But now we suffer physical, emotional, and relational pain. You ever, you know, you ever hear from people like, I don't know why God would let this happen. I don't know why, you know, why now? Why, why did my baby die before it was born? Why, why did my husband leave me? Why, why did my father pass away so young? Why, why all these things? Why, how could God let this happen? Let me just tell you the fall, the fall. 
our sin, sin is what has brought this into the world, this pain, this suffering, both physical, emotional, and relational. Second, sin carries with it relational conflict. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had a perfect marriage. For three minutes, their marriage was perfect. I don't know how long it was, right, before between their creation and the fall. But things were perfect. There was no fighting. Everything was just perfect. They had that leave it to beaver type family vibe going on, and everything was perfect. But as soon as sin entered the world, they had relational conflict. We have relational conflict in so many aspects of our lives now, even with our family, with our spouse, sometimes even more so with our spouse. Adam blamed Eve (laughs) for the entire situation of the fall. Husbands and wives, aren't we still doing that today? Looking at one another, blaming one another for our own sin, for our own shortcomings. Why? Mostly because they're the closest to us. They just happen to be in the line of fire. Third, sin leads to futility. Our lives are now characterized by futility that sees thorns and thistles in every single thing we do. You want to read, you want to get kind of sad about life? Read Ecclesiastes, right? Just like, no matter what we do, nothing changes. Let me just tell you something about sin. We're never going to reverse its effects during this time, right? We're never going to turn around. Sin is going to continue to exist until Jesus comes back and sets all things right. Sin will continue in this world. It's effects, it's pain, it's suffering. But when we die or when Jesus comes back to take his church home, that's the end. That's the end of it. The end of pain, the end of suffering, and all things will be made as they were originally. This futility will be over with. Fourth, sin leads to death. God reiterated again that the the result of sin is death. And God was merciful to Adam and Eve. He didn't strike them dead immediately, right? But death was surely born in their body. And as we see time progress, right, we see the age of men, how how long we're living, get progressively lower, all right, from the beginning of the Bible. I think, how old was Methuselah, Bible quiz lady? In the 960s, okay, That's that's pretty old. That's too old, I think. Like, I don't want to live to 960. That's not good. But I think fifth and by far the worst is this loss of the presence of God, which we as Christians enjoy in part. In part, we enjoy the, uh, you know, we, we can pray. We can know God hears us. And as Stacy said in, in worship, we can now return to the holies of holies. What's that mean? Well, that's a reference to the Old Testament and the tabernacle, where the tabernacle was separated into three distinct areas. And in that last area was the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant. And only the priest can go in there. And that was called the Holy of Holies. And that present, that absolute power and presence of God has been restored to us through Jesus Christ. We can go into the holies of holies and we can pray and we can, but it doesn't have to be a it doesn't have to be a church. It doesn't have to be any specific place or room. Um, my, my holy of holies, my place where I commune with God is in my office, and I have a big soft chair, and I kneel down and put my elbows in that chair, and I just cry out to God, and I have direct access to God. Is that the same as being in glory with God? No, but it's a glimpse. It's a part. 
of what it's going to look like. But this loss of the presence of God, remember Adam and Eve were walking with God in the garden. I mean, they had perfect fellowship with God. They were, they were with God. But the fall has resulted in a separation there between us and God. Now, God's response to sin, even early in Scripture, is, out, is, is astounding to me. God came to the garden. I think it's important to remember that God knows all things. Did he know Adam and Eve had sinned? Absolutely. He comes looking for Adam and Eve. This is a picture of God that we often overlook. That even in the midst of Adam and Eve's sin, God came looking. God came to the garden. And he came looking for Adam and Eve. He wasn't God the destroyer. He was God the seeker. And God has ever since been seeking to restore the relationship between God and man. God sought to confront Adam and Eve about their sin, but also to declare hope. He promised to raise up offspring of Eve, to crush Satan. And Jesus is a truer and better Adam who resists temptation and brings life into the world. Oftentimes, theologians refer to Jesus as the second Adam, the perfect Adam. And he came to set all things right. God performed the first atoning sacrifice on behalf of his people. The future sacrifice of Christ was foreshadowed in this sacrifice. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man by help with the Lord. I just read this, and I think this is hilarious, right? Like, this is the first time that we see a baby being born, right? Can you imagine? Like, Eve, she's like, I think it's a tumor. I don't know, right? What is going, you know, she has no idea. What, what is going on in here? I'm, I'm not eating much. You know, my pants just don't fit anymore. Uh, what is going on? Right? And then boom, it happens, and ah, oh, it's a per- it was a person in there, a very tiny one, just little bitty person. And she's figuring it out. Look, I've got a I've, I've got a person with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd, and Adam a worker, excuse me, Cain a worker of the ground, a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. That's just so you know what, what that means is uh, Abel didn't just bring the flank steak, right? Abel brought the New York strip right? He brought the ribeye. He brought the filet mignon. He brought the good portions of meat. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face falling? fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Point three, sin and death have spread to all humanity. Cain and Abel are a perfect reflection of this. 
We don't know exactly why Cain's, ab- Cain's offering was rejected by God. Perhaps it was not the first fruit. Perhaps Cain gave only of his abundance. He only gave of what he had left over. Took care of all of his needs, put a bunch in the barn and said, okay, this is left over. I'll give this to God. This is a very common way of giving today, right? We first take sure, make sure all of our needs and wants are taken care of, and then we decide whether or not we can put a 20 or a 50 in the offering, right? We decide if we can do that. Giving of God is not our first priority. Now, perhaps, right, he was happy with Abel because it says in the Bible that he brought the firstborn of his flock. I want to tell you that without getting, this is not a message about giving, but there is important truth in this scripture that we need to really get get our mind wrapped around, all right? When we, when Stacy and I got married, we decided first and foremost we would always honor God with it would be the first place our money went was to our tithes and to our offerings, that we would always be faithful in giving to the church, and we would always ask God for favor to increase our ability to give. Now, our tithes and our offerings was never a question, right? We would always give of our tithe, our 10%. That was a good starting point for us. But we always ask God to give us the ability and opportunity to increase that over the years, and by His grace, we've been able to. And I think there's... You know, there's a difference between tipping God, which is giving him what's left over, Trinkgeld, right? We're not giving God our Trinkgeld. We're giving him the best. We're giving him the absolute best. There's a big difference in how we approach giving. Perhaps this was the difference between what Abel and Cain did. Of course, it's all conjecture. We don't really know. We just know that Cain's offering was not as suitable as Abel's. And what rose up in Cain? Jealousy. Spiritual jealousy. Does that exist? Absolutely. Does it happen within the church? Yes. Does it have super ugly consequences? Yes. Thank God most of the time it doesn't end in murder, right? But it still has unbelievably horrible consequences within the church. Division, jealousy, strife, gossip, and backbiting, right? Because somebody's doing something different in the Lord. Somebody's doing something that you want to do. Somebody's doing something, or you could do it better, and so this jealousy and this strife comes up, and maybe we don't kill somebody, but we do everything we can to undermine them, to harm them, to uh, besmirch their character, right? That's right. I use besmirch. For some reason, I think of Smurfs when I say that. Whoever or whatever gets our first and our best reveals the true Lord of our lives. Let me just say that one more time. Whoever or whatever gets our first and our best reveals the true Lord of our lives. Because sin is manifested in our tendency to worship ourselves, selfishness is the opposite of of love. Love looks outwardly to place others before oneself, but selfishness operating from the mindset that I'm more important than others is sinful. Love looks outward. You've often heard me say, love sees a need and meets it, right? You look outward. You're looking of how you can serve others. I would say one of the most destructive lies in our lives is that what we are doing is our own business, 
I see this manifested in a lot of ways. Like when I'm in, in a growth group and uh, somebody in our growth group is obviously sinning, right? And I've confronted this person about it. You know, they're a little shocked sometimes. And they're like, well, that's my business. Is it really, though? Is it, is it really? Aren't you in Christian community? Is, isn't this why we're kind of in Christian community? Now, I'm not talking about, I, didn't, I had a problem with the way they did something. I'm talking about obvious sin, right? This is why we're in Christian community, is to encourage one another, sharpen one another, challenge one another. Maybe you think, well, that's not what I'm in Christian community for. And the church isn't doing this in a large part, right, and on, on a whole. The church isn't doing this because we're afraid to do it or whatever, but that's why we're weak, to be honest with you. That's what I think. Why is the church so weak? Why is sin so rampant? Because we're all afraid of each other. We're all afraid to love each other enough to say something about it, right? You, you know for a fact that your coworker who goes to church with you is looking at porn all the time, but you don't ever say anything to him. Why not? Porn is, is destroying his marriage. It's destroying his own personal life. It's destroying the identity of the woman he loves and the woman in the video and the men in the video. It's destroying. These are people created in the image of God, right? You know this, but do you love them enough to rise up and say something about it? Say, hey, look, man, I love you. I, I don't want to see sin take root in your life. The Bible clearly teaches this is sexually, sexual immorality, right? But it even happens with our, within our own homes, Lesser sins are tolerated for fear of bigger ones manifesting. No, holiness is the standard. We are to hold one another accountable, and that starts in our homes. And then it goes outside into our growth groups, and it goes into our entire community. This idea that everything is our own business and you know nobody gets to say anything, that's idolatry because God uses people to sharpen us. Iron sharpens iron. You might not like me right now. You might not like what is being said. But the truth is, if it's pricking your heart and if it's causing you to even get the little hairs on the back of your neck to stand up, it's probably doing what it ought to be doing. Because unless we're challenged, we're never going to grow. Somebody say amen. Right? If you play, like there was a football game yesterday, junior high played, high school played. If you play teams that you can always wail on, will you ever get better? No. No, you'll get actually you'll get worse. In golf, if I if I always play somebody I can wail on, Sean's no longer here. I hope he's listening to the podcast though, because I wailed on him all the time, right? If I constantly was doing that and never being challenged, would I get better? No. And it's this, why is why do we think church is different? It's not. We need to put ourselves in a position where we are vulnerable. And where people can speak truth into our lives, challenge us to be more like Jesus, not kick us down. I spent a lot of time talking about this, but I think it's really, really important because we see this, what God says about sin, that it's always crouching at the door. I've been a Christian 20-some years, I think quickly coming upon 25 years, you know, I've been a Christian, and just when I think I've got something licked in my life, an area of temptation and sin, sin is crouching at the door, and there's a new area of temptation, and there's a new area of sin. 
work trying to work its way into my life. Our defenses can never be down. We can never relax. We can never give up. We must be vigilant in our walk with Jesus, keeping sin crouching at the door, never letting it into our lives. When we make our own happiness, our own pleasure, when we follow our heart, when we just do whatever we want because it makes us happy, we are capable of almost anything. Of almost, if, if your happiness is paramount, what will you not do to be happy? If that's all that you want is happiness, if all you're working at is your happiness, then the lives of other people don't really matter, right? What the, matter of fact, you'll easily step on somebody else to help yourself. This is why we serve Jesus, not our own self-interest. We serve the Lord. Keep sin at the door. So what does this mean for all of us? Well, I would say first and foremost, it shows us all that we are sinners. And that's important. Because unless we can confess that we're sinners, we can never receive the grace of God. Right? And this is a huge stumbling block for people coming to Jesus. They can never confess that their sin, that their sin is separated from God and that they personally need the grace and mercy of a Savior. I, no, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I've never murdered anybody, right? I've never murdered anybody. Hey, I've been married 25 years. Never murdered anybody. You know, that's your standard. And so we add to our goodness Christ. But that true measure of our depravity and how there is no hope other than Jesus has never really entered our heart. And maybe that's because of the way you were brought up, right? You went to confess to some guy in a little booth, and he said, go out and say five Hail Marys and three Our Fathers, and you're good, right? Like there's something you can do to earn forgiveness. There's not. Jesus did it all. We believe in the absolute complete atonement. There's nothing you can do to add to it. But once we admit we're sinners in need of a Savior, then it becomes easy to accept Jesus as our Savior. That Jesus came to free us from the penalty of sin and death. Our mission as a church, as people, is if we have accepted these truths and we are living them out, is to make that truth known to the world. Right? We do it personally by sharing the gospel. We do it corporately by supporting missionaries and ministries around the world. We have a mission in this whole thing. And that the people around us that don't know Jesus are still caught in the web of deception and lies that the enemy, you know, uh, spun up in the garden. They're self-deceived. They're worshiping themselves. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. And in many ways, we're blind to our own sin until we're confronted with it. So, not an easy sermon to hear or preach, but I think it's essential that we understand who we are, why the world's not perfect, and why Jesus, the perfect Son of God, came to seek and save that which was lost. Since the garden, He's come to seek and save us. He came looking for Adam and Eve, who hid themselves, and He even entertains them and is merciful to them. It says, where are you? 
He knew exactly where they were. He knows exactly where you are. He's come to offer mercy. Would you accept his offer? Will you walk with Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sin. Thank you for listening to the SMCC Sermon Podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at smcchurch.net. That's smcchurch.net.